From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we also veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to some of my patrons, Ariel, Elise, Chantel, Sonia, Dan, Maya, Linda, Teresa, my dear three Emmas, Jessica, Lady Janice, Elena, Alethea, John, Nanette, Rachel, Sophie, Whitney, David, Catherine, Trudy, and Stacy. Thank you guys so, so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patron. Like, share, subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. And if you happen to watch on YouTube and also use Spotify, consider watching on Spotify instead as they have been kind enough to sponsor me and we all know how YouTube treats us. But my podcasts are all written in advance with a listener only in mind, so nothing is missed. This week's podcast will be a true crime science and it will be a look at attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD with regards to true crime. Now, with ADHD, there is an overwhelming amount of information, so this will be an overview of the disorder and how it can relate to highly criminal behavior. For my disclaimer disclaimer, I am in no way trying to suggest that everyone with ADHD is or will commit criminal behavior. I know a couple of people who have never really committed any crimes. This isn't to put a negative light on individuals with this disorder at all. Now, with that said, I would gather that nearly all of us have not only heard of ADHD, but know someone with this particular diagnosis. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is marked by an ongoing pattern of attention and or hyperactivity impulsivity that interferes with functioning or development. People with ADHD experience an ongoing pattern of these types of symptoms. Inattention. An individual may have difficulty staying on task, sustaining focus, as well as staying organized, and these problems are not due to defiance or lack of comprehension. Hyperactivity. The person may seem to move about constantly, including in situations when it is not appropriate or excessively fidgets, taps, or talks. In adults, hyperactivity may mean extreme restlessness or talking too much. And then impulsivity. An individual may act without thinking or have difficulty with self-control. Impulsivity could also include a desire for immediate rewards or the inability to delay gratification. An impulsive person may interrupt others or make important decisions without considering long-term consequences. 
Some people with ADHD mostly feel the symptom of inattention, while others' symptoms are hyperactivity, impulsivity, and still others have both. Most people experience some inattention, unfocused motor activity, and impulsivity, but for people with ADHD, these symptoms are much more severe, occur more often, and interfere with or reduce the quality of how they function socially at school or at their job. Looking at the inattention portion, people with this symptom often overlook or miss details and make seemingly careless mistakes in schoolwork, at work, or during other activities. They often have difficulty sustaining attention during play or tasks like during conversations, lectures, or lengthy reading. They have a much harder time being able to listen when spoken directly to and find it hard to follow through on instructions or finish schoolwork, chores, or other duties like in the workplace, or may start tasks but lose focus and get easily sidetracked. They often have difficulty organizing tasks and activities, doing tasks in sequence, keeping materials and belongings in order, managing time, and meeting deadlines. They tend to avoid tasks that require sustained mental effort, such as homework or for teens and older adults, preparing reports, completing forms, or reviewing long papers. They also lose things that are necessary for tasks or activities, such as school supplies, tools, wallets, keys, their glasses, phones. You get the drift. They are often easily distracted by unrelated thoughts or stimuli, and they tend to be forgetful in daily activities, such as chores, errands, returning calls, and keeping appointments. Moving on to the hyperactivity impulsivity portion, People with symptoms of this often fidget and squirm while seated, leaving their seats in situations when staying seated is expected, like in a classroom or an office. They might run, dash around, or climb at inappropriate times, or, in teens and adults, often feel restless. They very well might not be able to enjoy play or hobbies quietly. They may be in constant motion or on the go or act as if driven by a motor. Some talk excessively and answer questions before they are fully asked, finish other people's sentences, or speak without waiting their turn. They tend to interrupt or intrude on others during conversations, games, or activities. To be diagnosed, the symptoms must be chronic or long-lasting, impair the person's functioning, and cause the person to fall behind typical development for their age. Stress, sleep disorders, anxiety, depression, and other physical conditions or illnesses can cause similar symptoms to those of ADHD, so a thorough evaluation is necessary to determine the cause of the symptoms. Now, a primary care physician can sometimes diagnose and treat ADHD, but they should refer the person to a mental health professional who can perform the necessary evaluations. This would be ideal, of course. So, these symptoms can and do change over time as the person ages. I've seen this firsthand. In young children with ADHD, which is fairly typical when one is diagnosed, the hyperactivity impulsivity is the most predominant symptom. 
As the child reaches elementary school, the inattention may become more obvious and cause the child to struggle in class. During the adolescent phase, hyperactivity seems to at least lessen and they are more likely experiencing feelings of restlessness or fidgeting, but inattention and impulsivity may remain. Many, not all, but many adolescents with ADHD also struggle with relationships and antisocial behaviors. More on this in a bit. So the inattention, restlessness, and impulsivity tend to persist into childhood. So what causes ADHD? According to the CDC, scientists are studying cause or causes and risk factors in an effort to find more successful ways to manage and reduce the chances of a person having ADHD. The causes and risk factors are unknown, but current research shows that genetics play an important role. For starters, it tends to run in families, and in most cases, it's thought that genes you inherit from your parents are a significant factor in developing the condition. Parents and siblings of someone with ADHD are more likely to have it themselves, but it is believed that the way it is inherited is likely to be complex and is not thought to be related to a single genetic fault. In addition to genetics, scientists are studying other possible causes and risk factors, such as brain injury, exposure to environmental risks, such as something like lead during pregnancy or at a very young age, alcohol consumption and smoking during pregnancy, premature delivery or low birth weight. An apparent popularly held belief is that ADHD is caused from eating too much sugar, watching too much TV, parenting or social environmental factors like poverty and family chaos. Now, could these things make symptoms worse? Absolutely. So what does the ADHD brain look like? Well, research has identified a number of possible differences in the brains of people with this condition compared to those without. For example, studies involving brain scans have suggested that certain areas of the brain may be smaller in people with ADHD, whereas other areas may be larger. Other studies have suggested that people with ADHD might have an imbalance in the level of neurotransmitters in the brain or that these chemicals may not work properly. So now that is the background in ADHD, a very general broad overview. What I've always found fascinating, and hopefully you will as well, is the comorbidities and related conditions and how they relate to the subjects of our studies in true crime. So it is said that something like 80% of those with ADHD are also diagnosed with at least one other psychiatric disorder sometime in their life. The most common are learning disabilities, anxiety, depression, sensory processing disorder, and oppositional defiant disorder, which we've talked a lot about during these podcasts about serial killers. Those are the most common they can also include autism spectrum disorder, bipolar disorder, body-focused repetitive behaviors, eating disorders, language processing disorders, OCD, 
sleep disorders, Tourette's syndrome, and on and on. About 40% of individuals with ADHD have oppositional defiant disorder, 40%. ODD involves a pattern of arguing, losing one's temper, refusing to follow rules, blaming others, deliberately annoying others, being angry, resentful, spiteful, and vindictive. Now, among individuals with ADHD, conduct disorder may also be present, occurring in 27% of children, 45 to 50% of adolescents, and 20 to 25% of adults with ADHD. Children with conduct disorder may be aggressive to people or animals, destroy property, lie or steal things from others, and run away and skip school or break curfews. Adults with conduct disorder often exhibit behaviors that get them into trouble with the law, and this represents the disruptive behavior disorders. With the crossover between ADHD and mood disorders, we see that, at least in adults, around 38% of ADHD patients do have a co-occurring mood disorder, which are characterized by extreme changes in mood. Children with mood disorders may seem to be in a bad mood often. They may cry daily or be frequently irritable with others for no apparent reason. Mood disorders include, of course, depression, mania, and bipolar disorder. To put it in perspective, approximately 14% of children with ADHD also have depression, whereas only 1% of children without the disorder have depression. Now, in adults with ADHD, approximately 47% also have depression. We typically see the ADHD first, then the depression later. Then we have around 20% of individuals with ADHD that may show symptoms of bipolar disorder, which is a severe condition involving periods of mania, abnormally elevated mood and energy, contrasted by episodes of clinical depression. When it comes to anxiety, 30% of children and around 53% of adults with ADHD may also have anxiety disorder. They have a higher rate of having learning disorders, about 50% did, compared to about only 5% for people who did not have ADHD. Then there's the sleep disorders, which are predominantly more severe in these individuals. And then, as I have seen so many times while watching the show Soft White Underbelly on YouTube, where Mark interviews people from all walks of life with all manner of troubles, and he stated that he has seen research showing people with these serious and dangerous addictions more often than not having been diagnosed with ADHD in their life. And research does suggest that young people with ADHD are at increased risk for very early cigarette use, followed by alcohol and then drug abuse. So this brings me to the differences in brain activity between people with ADHD and people without. This is my favorite part. According to Medical News Today, with regards to ADHD, a large imaging study confirmed differences in several brain regions. 
They looked at brain images of over 3,200 people, and the results provided strong evidence that ADHD is a disorder of the brain. This study was funded by the National Institutes of Health, or NIH, and is published in The Lancet Psychiatry. The group was investigating genetic and brain imaging differences in psychiatric disorders. So, sit down. ADHD brains are smaller overall and in certain regions. Previous studies have found links between differences in brain volume and ADHD. For example, some suggested that the basal ganglia, which is an area of the brain that controls emotion, cognition, and voluntary movement, is involved. They found that two regions of the ganglia tend to be smaller in people with ADHD. For a new study, Dr. Hoogman and colleagues measured differences in brain structure from MRI scans of 1,713 participants diagnosed with ADHD and in 1,529 other people, the controls, who did not. The participants' age ranged from 4 to 63 years old. From the MRI scans, the team could review overall brain volume as well as the size of seven regions of the brain that previous studies have linked to ADHD. These were the caudate nucleus, the putamen, nucleus accumbens, the pallidum, the thalamus, the amygdala, and the hippocampus. The results showed that the brains of participants with ADHD were smaller overall and that volumes of five of the seven regions were also smaller, the caudate nucleus, the putamen, the nucleus accumbens, the amygdala, and the hippocampus. The researchers speculate that the amygdala is linked to ADHD through the part it plays in controlling emotion and the nucleus accumbens through the role it plays in reward processing. The link between ADHD and the hippocampus could perhaps arise from that region's involvement in motivation and emotion, as they suggested. The differences in brain size were particularly prominent in the children and less obvious in the adults with ADHD, note the authors, who suggest that their findings show that ADHD is a brain disorder characterized by delayed development in several brain regions. Parts of the ADHD brain mature at a slower pace, approximately one to three years, and never reach the maturity of a person who does not have ADHD. Another interesting finding was that the amygdala and hippocampus are smaller in the brains of people with ADHD. These areas are responsible for emotional processing and impulsivity, and had previously not been definitively connected to ADHD. Now guys, I know that was a lot of information about the brain and this condition, but I'm hoping my true crime veterans picked up on some key nuggets of information there. The caudate nucleus is a C-shaped structure deep within the brain near the thalamus. What is it responsible for? Well, it not only plays a big role in how we move our bodies, but also in learning, memory, reward, motivation, emotion, and romantic interaction. Then information from the caudate nucleus travels to the hippocampus, globus pallidus, and thalamus. 
Research again has shown caudate nucleus dysfunction in several pathologies, not limited to but including ADHD, bipolar disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, and schizophrenia. The punamen is sort of a smallish round ball under the caudate nucleus, and it is responsible for learning and motor control, including speech articulation, language functions, reward, cognitive functioning, and unfortunately, addiction. The nucleus accumbens is just under and in front of the caudate nucleus and is the interface between motivation and action, playing a key role on feeding, sexual, reward, stress-related, and drug self-administration behaviors, and so on. And now we're sort of moving to the big guns. The hippocampus is embedded deep into the temporal lobe and near the other structures that we just talked about. It has a major role in learning, memory encoding, memory consolidation, and spatial navigation. Damage to the hippocampus can cause a condition called amnesia that prevents people from forming new memories and remembering past experiences. It can also cause changes in cognitive functioning, mood dysfunction, getting lost in familiar places, losing or misplacing items frequently, yes, problems following directions, and problems with decision making. And then finally, we have the infamous amygdala. We already know with regards to ADHD, researchers believe that the amygdala is linked to this condition through the part it plays in controlling emotions. The amygdala is one of the regions that is most often brought up when we speak about violent criminals like serial killers. The amygdala, which are these two little kind of nearly almond-shaped sized areas deep within the brain, sort of at the bottom and in front of the rest of these areas we were just talking about, it is responsible for processing fearful and threatening stimuli, including detection of threat and activation of appropriate fear-related behaviors in response to threatening or dangerous stimuli. When the amygdala is impaired or damaged, it can cause very serious problems such as poor decision-making and impaired emotional memories. Differences or damage to the amygdala typically causes a decreased fear response, though on occasion it can cause hypervigilance. From an article in the World Journal of Biological Psychiatry, quote, Imaging data in humans support the notion that aggressive behavior may in part be attributable to impairments in amygdala function. There are reports of amygdala volume abnormalities in neuropsychiatric patients with aggressive behavior. So I'm going to use my disclaimer disclaimer again to remind everyone listening that I am not saying everyone with ADHD goes on to become violent offenders. I know people with ADHD who certainly have never done anything of the kind. So moving on, if a child with ADHD and ODD does not outgrow the ODD, they typically wind up having antisocial personality disorder. Psychopathy and ADHD can be comorbid or exist together easily. Psychopaths tend to get bored so easily and quickly due to the ADHD. 
They run on short term or the immediate memory. Their emotions are shallow and fleeting and need fast paced action oriented tasks. To them, they need to go, 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 as I like to call it in my house. Two people in my house actually have severe ADHD, so believe me, I know. Many people with ADHD have high empathy, but it is common to have a comorbidity of antisocial personality disorder, among other things. Individuals who have been diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder often experience difficulty when it comes to concentrating on a task. Similarly, they may often suffer from severe hyperactivity or have high rates of impulsivity. Some research, some, suggested that serial killers often are diagnosed with moderate or severe cases of attention deficit disorders. But the list, names specifically, hmm. A leading psychiatrist at Broadmoor, Dr. Susan Young, has said that almost half the prison population could have avoided a life of crime if treated as children for the behavioral disorder ADHD. Research carried out by Dr. Young, who specializes in working with murderers at the high-security Berkshire Hospital, reveals that up to 45% of youth offenders and 30% of adult criminals have the condition that causes hyperactivity or inattentiveness. And this is where I get to talk, yet again, about one of my nerd crushes, Dr. James Fallon. I know I bring him up a lot, but he is amazing. He did a TED talk talking about exploring the mind of a killer, and I will link that video in the notes. If you are as into the biological or genetic factors with regards to dangerous people as much as I am, I highly recommend you go watch Dr. Fallon. He's just amazing. But to quote some of what he says in this, he talks about how society ends up with psychopathic killers such as David Berkowitz, Ed Gein, everybody's favorite Ted Bundy, my nemesis, Albert Fish, John Wayne Gacy, and so on. Dr. Fallon was given a blind experiment, brain scans, and he had no upfront information on who the brain scans were for or what the overall review was going to be for, okay? He went in blind. What he noticed was that every person who was a murderer had damage to their orbital cortex and also the interior part of the temporal lobe, such as the amygdala, which is exactly the region of the brain we just discussed that strongly determines and affects people with ADHD. So which serial killers or other very dangerous people had ADHD? Well, out of all of this, and this was the portion I was really excited for, only to find that there really isn't a lot of verifiable information out there about which might have had it. We know that some of the parts of the brain affected when it comes to ADHD are also the same areas that are affected in those with antisocial personality disorder and other disorders that grow up to violently offend. We know ADHD can be comorbid with other disorders, of course, and I surprisingly could not find great source material speaking about studies on this. 
a dear friend of mine and writer, Erin Banks, was gracious enough to kind of let me pick her brain, and she too said that we might have stumbled upon an area that needs more study and research. It was said that Richard Ramirez had ADHD, but the source is kind of questionable. Another said Henry Lee Lucas, but again, it was one source. You see, friends, when an idea pops into my head and I get really excited about researching and learning all I can about it, I'm also excited to share what I find with you. With this particular subject, there just hasn't been a lot of studies to see if there is a statistically relevant correlation between these violent offenders and how many actually could have been or were diagnosed with ADHD. And we have to account for the fact that this diagnosis wasn't readily handed out or tested for when most of the people that we discuss here were children, as we know most of them were quite elderly now or would be were they still alive. Of course, I have known about ADHD since high school and I have studied it, albeit surface level, all of my life. But this sort of deep dive has really been eye-opening for me on a very personal level. It has helped explain many of the behaviors that I find troubling or disturbing. So tell me guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment below. You can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. All of my contact information is below. But most importantly, thank you so much guys for listening because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me. You keep choosing me. And I really appreciate that. Thanks so much, guys. Have a great day. Anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer. And whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time, and then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing. 